Welcome to the Innovations in Aging podcast, where we explore the latest in how the next generation of change makers can prepare to meet the needs of our aging world. I'm your host, John Keevan. Today, we're speaking with Dr. David Beta. David is chair and professor of the Department of Bioethics and Medical Humanism at the College of Medicine in Phoenix. In our conversation, we discuss a lot about ethics and the medical field and the importance of autonomy and personhood for people of all ages. Let's get started. Hello, David. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, before we go deep into conversation, maybe you can just tell us a bit about how you found yourself in the field of ethics, bioethics. Sure. Uh, well, thank you, John, for having me on this uh, podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity and to be part of uh, this new venue uh, and to kind of share what my background is uh, as it relates to medical ethics. Well, first off, I'm a retired uh, pediatric critical care physician, having practiced for over 40 years. And it was that, um, that journey in pediatric critical care that uh, moved me on a track to medical ethics. Uh, early on in my um, vocation, I found myself more focused on the disease, the what, rather than the who, the patient, and uh, found myself really doing perhaps a little bit of an injustice to the ethics of caring about and caring for uh, patients. Uh, so if I may, I'll give you an example of kind of how sure. my hands got slapped. Um, <laughs> I was making rounds um, probably well, I don't know, about five or six years into uh, uh, my role as uh, a pediatric intensivist, making rounds on a, a little four-year-old uh, by the name of Jeffrey, who was involved in a motor vehicle accident, mm. and he had multiple injuries, uh, serious injuries. And I was on rounds with about 15 people, and I had um, poster board paper everywhere, and I was talking about uh, all the physiology of brain metabolism and blood flow and all of that, and just kind of really pontificating on physiology and the illness and the injuries. And the parents make rounds with us. And uh, halfway through one of my sentences, the mother said, excuse me, you don't really know who Jeffrey is, do you? You just know what he is, a bunch of broken pieces that you're trying to put back together again. And there was complete silence. And mm -hmm. it was at that moment that I knew that I was on the wrong track of my role as a physician, it became very clear to me that I needed to move in a different direction. And that was to really focus on uh, the who and not the what. Uh, as physicians, we spend a lot of time with the what, the disease, and not thinking about who the patient is and what their relationship with their illness is. Yeah. So I started writing about that. And uh, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the whole philosophy of our ICU changed and it was all about uh, the patient and not necessarily the, the disease. Um, and uh, I, I moved towards uh, doing a journey in uh, medical ethics. So I went through with, uh, so I, I got invited to Georgetown to do a visiting scholarship in uh, clinical ethics and a visiting fellowship in uh, uh, ethics of philosophy at Georgetown uh, and spent uh, many years going back and forth and, and getting, uh, getting reviewed on that and came back as a trained ethicist and then brought ethics to the bedside mm -hmm. uh, and uh, have been teaching medical ethics uh, at the bedside for years uh, and uh, have taught medical students, our residents, our fellows, our uh, faculty, et cetera, and uh, moved towards uh, 
balancing my role as a critical care physician and my role as an ethicist, using my expertise in, bo in both. As a, as a pediatric intensivist, I have the expertise to save lives as a pediatric ethicist. I had the expertise to ask the question, should I? So uh, there was that issue of what we needed to do uh, mm -hmm. and where we needed to go with that. So when I retired, I was invited to become a chair of the Department of Bioethics here at the College of Medicine in Phoenix and have been teaching the, uh, the course, uh, the, the theme, ethics theme uh, uh, since uh, 2014 uh, to our medical students. So that's my background in medical ethics and critical care. An amazing story. I, I mean, it sounds like you were probably trained, and I imagine this still happens, uh, where your training in medical school was to focus on the problem, the problem in that case being the, the medical situation, right? And that it probably wasn't even a big part of your curriculum to focus on the person. Is that fair to say? Is that is that common? It's 100%. And yeah. that's what we're doing now is, again, there's a, there's a difference between um, the what and the who. Yeah. Uh, the what is the disease and the who is the patient and their uh, relationship with their illness. Mm -hmm. uh, and so here's some of the things that we see that are just not right on rounds. For example, uh, a student or an attending may, may start the presentation. This is a 46-year-old uh, who presented last night with uh, renal failure. That's the what. Yeah. The real presentation should be uh, Mr. Smith is a 46-year-old who presents in renal failure. Mm -hmm. The identification of a person versus the disease. So just by identifying the person is what the, was what the key theme is all about when we talk about uh, ethics at the bedside and making the hard decisions. Yeah, I feel like there's so much overlap there with, um, with aging and this concept of the aging experience, right? I mean, you can have a lot of different disciplines that are focused on pharmaceutical, architectural, legal changes, uh, challenges that exist for older adults, but you can do all that without thinking about what their life experience is and what what it is to be an older adult and uh you know what um about that person themselves and so i, I think it's, it's probably a, a story that's true across a lot of disciplines uh but but certainly i think within within the aging realm it's it's a it's a concept of something that needs to be reinforced and continue to be uh shared that that humanistic that human relationship is a critical component yeah well i think with the aging it's uh it's really key because um, as people age uh, and they sometimes or may fall into uh, forgetting, mm -hmm. uh, forgetfulness, dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, they lose their whole concept of personhood. They lose their person identity, their personal identity. And we uh, need to really uh, focus on the fact that they're still persons. Um, and I think that's probably one of the most important aspect of the ethics with the aged and mm -hmm. with those who are elderly. And I, and I, to be honest, I really don't like using the word aged, mm -hmm. uh, more, more of the elderly. I think that brings a lot more respect and dignity to, uh, to those who are older, uh, is their personhood, is their identity. Mm -hmm. So even mm -hmm. though they may have dementia or senile, uh, senile dementia or Alzheimer's, you know, the question comes up, are they still a person? Uh, there's a story I tell, and it's not mine, but it's been out there for a long time, uh, a story about uh, uh, a gentleman and his wife who had been married for like 60 years, and his wife began to have uh, signs of Alzheimer's and got to the point where he no longer could take care of her. So uh, he, 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 he uh, admitted her to an Alzheimer's facility. 
but every every morning at seven o'clock he would uh, he would come to the facility and he would wake her up and he would help her get dressed and help her brush her teeth and get her ready for breakfast and he would take her down to breakfast and he would sit with her and after breakfast they would go to the sunroom and he would sit with her uh, and they would uh, they would sit together and he would read uh, to her uh, she did not recognize him but he would be there all the time mm -hmm. uh, at lunchtime uh, he, he would get her uh, ready for lunch change her clothes and get her hair done take her down to lunch and he would have lunch with her and then after lunch he would go back to the sunroom and they would read for sit for a bit he would take her back to her, her room where um, you know he would sit by her bedside as she took a nap and then uh, when it came time for dinner time he would get her up and he would dress her in really nice clothes for dinner <laughs> and he would take her down for dinner and he would sit with her and after dinner uh, he would take her back up to her room and get her ready for bed put her in bed and then he would go home mm -hmm. usually about nine o'clock at night and he did this every day for weeks for months and one day he came at seven o'clock in the morning to the facility and a nurse stopped him and said you know I want you to know that what you do is amazing and that you come here every day. But you know, she doesn't know who you are, don't you? And he said, but I know who she is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the key. Yeah. It's this whole concept of personhood. And I think that really brings forth this whole ethics of it's who we are. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about medicine in general, for example, the patient who is permanently unconscious, what we call the vegetative state. Because they can't communicate with us and because they're in a vegetative state, are they no longer persons? Well, the answer to that is no, they are persons. They're entitled to respect and dignity and, and uh, response from us as personhood uh, and as persons. I give a challenge to my medical students and residents and fellows and even junior faculty and sometimes senior faculty. I said, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to go into one of your patient's room and that patient really needs to be unable to communicate with you, uh, unconscious, maybe in a vegetative state. And, and I want you to do nothing but hold their hand and to feel how vulnerable you are, but to also feel how privileged it is to be able to do so. And to be at the bedside, uh, recognizing someone who cannot communicate with you as a person. And so this whole concept of personhood in the elderly, uh, really uh, spans across all ages, mm. even with neonates uh, and pediatrics. The two-year-old who is a person, a neonate is a person. There are some ethicists out there that believe, like Peter Singer says that a neonate is no different uh, than, um, than a thing and that animals have more personhood rights mm. than a neonate. Um, and the same thing true for uh, a vegetative patient. So there's, there's a conflict there. But from my perspective as an ethicist and as a clinician, uh, one needs to really be focused on the who uh, and certainly not discount the what, but to always make sure that the who is at the top and the what is there as well. So when I meet, uh, let's say, uh, a new family patient, being in critical care, an example would be, um, you know, a four-year-old that comes in with trauma or with, uh, here in Arizona, we have a lot of submersion injuries. So let's take a, a four-year-old little boy who comes in with a drowning 
and I'll meet the parents for the first time. Hello, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Clemens. Uh, I'm Dr. Beta. I'm the critical care physician. Myself and my team are going to be taking care of, uh, uh, of little Jonathan. I want you to know that we are going to do everything we can to make sure that Jonathan has a meaningful life. Where I'm going with that is that I want the family to know that there's a difference between keeping him alive and ensuring that he has a meaningful life when he leaves the ICU or mm -hmm. if he doesn't leave the ICU. And then I follow up with that. You know, uh, I really like to get a little, uh, get to know a little bit more about Jonathan. Tell me a little bit about him. Where does he go? Does he go to preschool? Tell me about his friends. Tell me about the sports he plays. What I'm doing is getting uh, into this covenant relationship with the family uh, so that they know and I know who my patient is. And that gives us and allows us to have further discussions as we move forward. When I learned that uh, Jonathan is already in T-ball and has friends, and you know, we use those life experiences in talking about, well, you know, uh, Jonathan has had a serious injury. Uh, to his brain because he's had without oxygen, et cetera. You know, where are we going to go? What type of life experience should we be expecting? So it's all about the who. Uh, you know, we can talk about the hypoxic ischemic injury, but who is Jeffrey and who, who will Jeffrey become? So those are some of the things that we talk about when we talk about ethics. A beautiful story. And, and thank you for adding so much context there. I mean, I, I was drawn to sort of a connection that reminded me of something discussed in a previous podcast with um, uh, Jenny Gubner, and they were talking about um, some people that they had worked with, one in particular who was in a vegetative state, and uh, their caretaker, you know, was doing the rounds of, of making sure that um, the physical body needs were, were met, uh, but kind of felt like it wasn't able to make a connection with this um, this relative, this uh, connection that they have, personal connection they used to have. And so they started talking about uh, who is this person, what kind of things do they like, you know, what were their experiences in life, and um, they came up with uh, that this person loved a particular type of music. And so they put some music on for this person uh, and could see their foot moving a little bit, you know, and kind of a little bit of emotional response to um, some music that they loved their whole life, right? And it was just kind of part of their, their personality. And that brought a lot of tears and, and happiness from the caretaker who kind of felt like it was a one-way relationship up to that point, you know? And uh, I mean, I think there's a broader story there of in a, in a world where we are often encouraged to focus on the finances. How do we do this as cheaply and as efficiently as possible? It's easy to lose sight of all the players involved in that process and, and the personhood, again, going back to that word. Yeah, that's true. Um... One of the things that's interesting, if we want to get into the science and the literature, <clears throat> there is uh, a lot of discussion now as to whether we really know whether a patient is in a vegetative state or not. Are they really there? So um, what, what some are now doing are using activation studies, PET scans, where uh, they'll activate uh, and try and activate a part of the brain to see if that, in fact, it works or not. So, for example, what we've done in the past uh, especially with our pediatric patients, uh, we have taken the child down to our PET scanner and we have uh, done voice activation studies where we'll have hmm. someone speak to the child who they are unfamiliar with. And then we have the mother speak to the child. And on occasion, we have seen activation. 
hmm. when hmm. they recognize mother's voice. Hmm. That tells us that there is something in there moving, which changes our complete outlook on whether the outcome is going to be permanent or not. Hmm. And for the longest time, uh, we didn't do any of that. And it's being done with adults as well. Um, but, uh, you know, there's this, this concept is who's really, who's really, quote, in there? And do we have a right to start making decisions about withdrawal of support based on the fact that, yeah, you know, they're not responding to us. So, you know, they must not be here and they don't have a life and let's just kind of move forward. Uh, no, not, not good enough. Not good enough. Uh, we've got to really, again, uh, always, if you always focus on the person, not the human being. Mm -hmm. I want to make, make sure I'm clear on that. There's a difference between a, being a human being and a person. Some, and myself included, may describe a human being as kind of like a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it, it's a thing. But a person is much more than that. A person has issues of entitlement, of dignity, respect, and all of that. Uh, so there's a, there's a, a lot of us ethicists that are trying to change the language of never, uh, of trying to stay away from using the terms human being and really talking about persons. Uh, to really bring into focus what that's all about. Do you, do you think of the difference between person, you personally at least, the difference between person versus humans as like some of the parts greater than the whole? Is that how you say that? Right. Uh, uh, or is it more of like a completely different thing? Like it's uh, these two things together make, you know, the personhood <clears throat> that we interact with. Well, it's interesting. So um, when you talk about a human, uh, that's different than a human being. Uh, mm -hmm. The being part describes the human, from my perspective, as um, a thing. It's mm -hmm. a being. Mm -hmm. uh, some people say, well, the being can be definition of uh, something that's alive, mm -hmm. uh, what have you. Um, but from my perspective, a person and a human, if you put them together, yeah, it's the sum of the holes. And, you know, I put them the sum of the whole. You put them all together. And so you can have a human who is completely destroyed, so to speak, physically. Mm -hmm but their personhood still is intact. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I have never been, and I don't, I can't think of a time when a person loses personhood. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? You know, here's an example of what, I, what I'm talking about. You know, when people die, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when you pass, uh, are they no longer persons? Well, you know, they're gone, they're no longer persons. Yeah, but wait a minute, not so fast. Interesting that when they, when they die, uh, you have memorial services, you have, um, uh, you go to their uh, grave site mm -hmm. and you respond, you know, you talk to them. Uh, you, they're still persons because you relate to them as mm -hmm. persons. You relate mm -hmm. to them. So they're, they may be gone from the human being perspective, uh, from the physical perspective, but the personhood is always there. <clears throat> Every time we think about someone who has passed, who was close to us in life is personhood. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think I think about so and so all the time. That's personhood. I don't necessarily think about the being or the human right. uh, body. I, I think about the person. So you know, when you talk about you know when you do the memorial service or you know the you know you go to the grave, etc. It, it's very real. It's very real that personhood is always there, mm -hmm. always there, regardless. 
it's it's almost like one does not require the other necessarily. Maybe there's an incubation period there or something, but uh, maybe like a spirit, but perhaps less ethereal and sort of humanistic in imagery as we might imagine a spirit to be. But um, I'm sure there's a continuum there somewhere. It's, it'll be interesting to see how it's explored. So David, thanks for, uh, I'm thinking back now to your example of, of Jeffrey that you brought up at the very beginning of this podcast. Do you, do you feel like that's uh, an experience that most doctors have at some point uh, to sort of have that kind of aha moment through uh, um, a patient that they work with? Yeah, I think every physician has an aha moment. And it all depends on where they're at in their own journey in being a physician and being a, being a person uh, and actually being uh, from their spiritual and religious perspective as well and their own ethics and morals. Every physician has one. Those are lesson learned. Uh, they find themselves realizing what they've missed, uh, what they need to do yet, uh, where they need to go, what they have to do. Yeah, every physician does that. Uh, and uh, it changes. It changes their their uh, their journey. And I'm going to do some shameless self promotion, but I I wrote a book called uh, uh, Covenant Medicine: Being Present When Present. You can get it on uh, Amazon Kindle, uh, and it's my stories of my lessons learned. Each mm. one of my patients who brought forth in me an aha moment, like I I didn't understand what was going on until the patient or the parents brought it to my attention. And it was all those stories in this book that I wrote um, that really brought home uh, what, what, needs to be, what needs to be a focus uh, in my mind as a physician. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the who and the what. I can wear a white coat. And my white coat says David Beta MD. Everybody sees what I am, but who I am is not that white coat. Who I am is who I see in the mirror. Who do I want people to know about me? So it's, it's an issue of the what versus the who. What am I? Well, I'm a doctor, but who am I? I'm somebody who's a servant to those who come to me for help. Very different, very different. And there's some physicians who don't like that terminology. They don't like the fact that uh, I'm declaring them as servants to those who come to you, uh, come to them for help. Mm-hmm. Let me just be very clear. The reason that that I think about that often is because what do we label healthcare providers? Well, if you're a provider, what are you doing? You're giving things mm-hmm. to people that mm-hmm. you're being asked of. You're you're being asked of, and that's not what we are. We're not providers. We're uh, we're 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 professionals, of course. But we're, we're there to enter into a covenant relationship with patients so that we both can have an engagement of doing what is right and best for our patient. You know, this whole thing changed years ago with insurance companies where uh, patients were no longer called patients, they're called clients. Mm-hmm. You know, personhood. And where are you going with that? Mm-hmm. And how do you play that out? Um, I, I would not want my patients to ever be considered clients, my client. Uh, nor would I want to be, quote, their provider. I want to be their physician healer to the best I can be. So this whole concept of servanthood uh, and being a servant is not the one where you kneel down in, in the traditional definition of being a servant. Uh, a servant healer is one who is engaging in an open therapeutic relationship with a person willing 
willing and wanting to engage in a covenant relationship based on trust, integrity, respect, and having a mutual uh, understanding and admiration for who each other who each other is. So that really kind of comes into play. And the same thing holds true, uh, whether you're a pediatrician, a neonatologist, an intensivist, a geriatrician, internal medicine, palliative care, palliative care surgeon, what have you. Uh, we're there uh, to be there for those who come to us for help. Uh, it's as simple as that, but there's sometimes, uh, sometimes that's hard to accept uh, for uh, physicians. They feel like, and I come back to this other, uh, one of the aphorisms that I use with our students, and that is, I'm here to save everybody. Well, nowhere in the Hippocratic Oath does it say that, that you're supposed to save everybody. Nowhere. Uh, and nowhere in any Hippocratic Oath that has been written by medical students for each year, which is what's being done now, does it say that. It says, I will do everything I can for the betterment of my patient. Essentially is, anyone can save a life, but we really need to consider ensuring that they have a meaningful life once they leave the hospital or the, the ICU or what have you. So the same thing holds true for the elderly, uh, for, for those who are old. Uh, how, do we, how do we ensure that they have a meaningful life? Independence. I think that's probably the most important aspect of those who are elderly, is making sure that they're given as much independence as possible, as realistic, uh, without finding themselves hurting themselves or hurting someone else but independence and then recognition, a recognition of personhood. Don't use, don't use words like, well, he's got Alzheimer's. Well, that's a label, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, there's other ways to kind of, kind of say that or mention that, uh, you know, he's having difficulty with memory. That's a kinder, gentler way of using the terminology, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, he's having, he's having difficulty with, with memory. I know that I respect that but I'm not gonna label him as having Alzheimer's. Uh, we all know, we all know he has that, you know, it's, it's clear. I don't need to reinforce that. Uh, what I am doing is recognizing and um, respecting the fact that he's still a person with some memory difficulties mm -hmm. and that he needs help. And I'm here to help him and to be with him. So those are, those are some of the things that we see um, you know, ethics, again, could be a neonate, could be uh, someone who is 90 years old and everybody in between. If we just keep focused on the who, the person, we'll find the right, we'll find the right road uh, in, in doing what is best for our patients. Yeah, you know, you had also mentioned earlier about um, somebody comes in and you mentioned to their parents, a child, you know, you mentioned to their parents, I'm going to try to give him the, the best life experience or the best, the best life, you know, he can, he can have, or he or she can have. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's easy to sometimes hear sort of quabbles about what words are used and maybe it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but at the very least, I think keeping in mind when you talk about someone to say, you know, he's having, he's having, he or she is having a hard time remembering and not necessarily just labeling them with a disease or, a, you know, a, an ailment of some kind that in your mind, every, if, you, if you change the way you speak about it, you do tend to think about them more than just throwing labels around, just in the habit of, of using those kind of words. 
And uh, I think that alone is important for any discipline. I mean, earlier you were mentioning all kinds of different health sciences specialties that, uh, that this is important for, but I, I think it's true for any discipline, even an architect, you know, yes, you want to make the best, most efficient or most beautiful or whatever your, your individual goals are in designing a particular space. But in the end, you're designing it for somebody to be there and you want them to have the best experience in it and to, for that to be a, a part of your perspective on it. Having that view is just especially critical, I feel like, in, in the aging space where often there is a, a population of people who can't always speak for themselves that way. And hearing themselves talked about with a certain type of label can, for each of them, internally reinforce that they're not important or they're just a thing or they're just a, an ailment. And, uh, and helping them keep their own person or their own self-belief is, uh, is important for all of our benefits. Yeah, and if I could just add a little something, you know, when we talk about, you know, um, I want to ensure that you have a meaningful life, the best life, that does not discount those who are at the end of their life, mm -hmm. it does not count, discount that. You could be at the, you could have a terminal illness and be at the end of your life, right? So let's say you have terminal cancer and you've got six months to live, so to speak. You still can declare that you're going to do your best to, to help those in the, help them have the best experience that they can have uh, with whatever time they have left. And so it doesn't mean that, yeah, you know, we're going to go out in glory and, uh, you know, that I'm going to make sure that you're going to live forever. No, you, you, if you have six months left to live um, because you have terminal cancer, I'm going to be here with you and to give you an opportunity. I want to hear from you. I need you to tell me what what is what is a life experience, a, a, a good life experience, a happy life experience, going to be for you uh, as as we move together through these six months. What what is it, and mm -hmm. let's make it happen. So when we talk about uh, a meaningful life experience, it, it it is it can be literally you know years, it could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months. Mm -hmm. You can have a meaningful experience. So somebody who has a terminal illness who you've now shared bad news. Unfortunately, you have pancreatic cancer. I don't see, I don't see uh, any way to, to kind of get over this uh, other than, you know, in the next six months, uh, there's, a, there's a chance that you may pass, that you may die. So let's talk about what that life experience for you is going to be in the next six months. What, 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 what is it going to be for you and your family? And how can we make sure that that works for you? And for some, it's like, hey, you know, bucket list, you know, for kids, mm -hmm. make a wish, what have you. But it could be, no, I just want to sit. I want to go by, go to my cottage, cottage and sit and, and just uh, whatever. But I wanted to clarify that, that statement, a meaningful experience. It, it, it is, it, it can be any length of time, and it can be anything as long as, it, as, long as it's meaningful for the person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's great. Uh, thank you for that. And, you know, I know we're a um, good way through the podcast. And I think what I, I want to make sure that we do, because we've had a really interesting, you've had a lot of interesting stories, a lot, a lot of interesting ideas and concepts to share with the listeners about um, ethics and the way that it sort of uh, influences uh, the health sciences and your, both, you know, your position specifically. Um, I would like to try to swing back around to um, older adults uh, a little bit more and maybe um, 
you know, you said you wrote you you wrote a book about these experiences you had, which we will which we will link uh, with the podcast. But um, maybe you can share for those of us who um, don't know what unique challenges there are, if there if there are any specifically unique challenges for older adults in the ethics space. What are some examples of of ethical challenges that are uh, that are kind of specific medical sciences or not for for older adults? It all comes down to uh, autonomy and independence. Uh, just because a uh, person who is elderly does not mean that they do not have the capacity to make their own decisions relating to themselves. For example, we see, let's say, um, appetite. We see sometimes in long-term care facilities or facilities, assisted living facilities, where you have an elderly person who is sitting uh, all alone, all by themselves, kind of maybe looking at a TV or looking out the window and then it's lunchtime. Then you have somebody sit down in front of them who's spoon feeding them, pushing the food, pushing the food, pushing the food. The issue is ask that person, are you hungry? Well, the pushback that I've gotten is, well, they don't know whether they're hungry or not. They can't tell me because they're quote senile. You know, they don't, they're all, they got Alzheimer's. They can't answer that. We'll tell you what, why don't we do this? Let's give them independence. Let's give them an autonomy. Leave the plate down there in front of them and say, here it is. I'm always here that if you want help eating and if you get hungry, I'll watch you. I'm going to be watching you from the side. I'll be there for you. Let them make that decision. Let them decide how they want to go about doing it. And when the pushback is, well, you know, they're just, they don't know. They're, they're just going to sit there and look at their food and they may push it away. That's okay. You've given them their autonomy, their independence. They've given them, given them the opportunity to make their own decisions. It's really about staying away from the, the caveat of, well, they're not here, so they can't, they don't know what's going on. They don't have, they don't know how to make it, they can't make a decision. We got to do it for them. That's what we got to do. No, let them try. And if they don't, they don't, but at least you've given them that opportunity. So I think that to me has always been one of the biggest, biggest issues. And then when you talk about the ethical issues, when the elderly are being are being faced with the issue of suffering and pain, give them an opportunity to make their own decisions rather than deciding for them. Well, I think you're in a lot of pain, so I'm going to just I'm just going to fill you up with morphine. Well, the patient may not be able to tell you that because they may be uh, unable to, but be careful on how you go about doing it. And then you know. I don't want to get into this quagmire of the debate of what suffering is, mm -hmm. but from many perspectives, there's a difference between pain and suffering. You know, there's emotional and physical pain, but suffering is something different. And there's emotional suffering and there's painful suffering too, but to kind of describe each is, is a difficult thing to do. I, I think, John, in, in order to answer your question, I think for me, it's simply give as much independence and autonomy to the elderly as much as possible. Mm -hmm. By doing so, it gives them, it shows them respect. It gives them dignity. When uh, the person that you're trying to force feed does this, stop, stop. Well, he needs food. He's going to die if he doesn't eat. Well, give him some time, you know, maybe he'll come around, whatever, but uh, don't go there. Uh, you know, give them an opportunity to make their own decisions. So I think that that's a big, that's a big one. And, you know, there's this whole complexity of 
end-of-life decisions for the elderly. How do you decide when uh, enough is enough? When do you decide when care is futile? And when do you decide when, okay, uh, medical aid in dying? I don't even want to go there because that's a whole another topic of, you know, uh, you know, do we even talk about physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia? And that may be another podcast you may want to get into. <laughs> um, but we, we can go into that one uh, with the ethical discussions related to those. Um, but I, I, I'm just going to summarize again, I think from the elderly perspective, for those who are the elderly, independence, autonomy, give them and allow them as much as they are capable of. That's the summary statement. Yeah, uh, trying to draw that back out interdisciplinary again, I mean, I feel like there's a common theme in what you're saying here about, again, autonomy, which you said a couple of times, your choice, personhood. And I feel like you see that in a lot of disciplines. I mean, <clears throat> taking from the learning science side, which is where I come from, there is clear evidence that choice and autonomy in the learning space brings intrinsic motivation to students to, to improve learning outcomes and improve engagement. Um, there's always a balance there between the sustainability and the, um, the effort on the side of the educator to, to you know, sort of control the learning space, but choice brings so much motivation and so much personhood with it in that uh, it has significant impact in, in the learning space. And um, again, I think all of us could benefit from thinking more about the people we are interacting with, their needs, their desires, uh, what, what they want to be. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's really just come out in, in sort of your, your history here and what you're sharing about, about ethics in the, in the health sciences. Yeah, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of tread on some thin ice here, but when okay. we talk about learning space. <laughs> You know, the issue of autonomy and independence of a student perspective, yeah. mm -hmm. being in a classroom with students allows that. I mean, I have mm -hmm. that interaction as a professor to have that interaction with a student who's autonomous and independent I face to face. Mm -hmm. Now, now that we're doing a lot of online stuff, I had to find a way to kind of engage in that again, because then, and I think I just mentioned to you the course that I'm giving now and several of the courses that I put together my instructional designer, Amber, has done a great job using Flipgrid, where mm -hmm. the student can actually do a video with me and I can do a video with them. My very first assignment for them was on Flipgrid, tell me who you are. Mm -hmm. Boom. Because without that, on an online course, it's simply documents right. back and right. forth. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I, and that's, I love that. It worked great because that's their first assignment. First assignment on Flipgrid. You've got two minutes to tell me a little bit about who you are, and then I did the same. So that's the autonomy, the independence, because now that I know who my student is, we have things to talk about. Mm -hmm. That's diff That's uh, in addition to the topics within the course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe that's another podcast here. We can do learning sciences and andragogy and, and working with older adults uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> at, at some point. There's certainly it's easier for us. We're all more used to being able to see body language and, and talk with people and, and um, adjust our strategies, you know, based on those interactions In the learning space. It's uh, for online. It's especially asynchronous uh, when you're not meeting with people at the same time. It's a, uh, it's a bit more challenging. There's more technologies and more strategies that have to be implemented to get the information you would normally be able to get immediately, uh, but in different ways so that you can provide that kind of flexibility. So it's definitely a, a different challenge. 
Right. But I just want to swing back one, one more, one more thing that just kind of connected with me. You know, you were talking about this feeding example uh, of an older adult and sort of shoving food in the mouth. And, and I know you have a, a background in pediatrics as well. And, I'm, and I immediately sort of had this connection of parents doing the same thing to their kids saying, you know, uh, you know, I, I know that you need to eat. So you're going to eat, right? And you're going you're gonna to do it now. And uh, sort of pushing that onto the child. And, and, and often, I think, is that same thing of maybe control, you know, just, I think I know what's right. And so I'm going to make that happen, uh, whether whether or not that's what the other person thinks it needs to happen. So maybe it's a control problem. Maybe it's a lack of personal appreciation. Maybe it was the same thing. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, just think about, about the, the classical video of a one-year-old sitting in their high chair with a bowl of spaghetti in front of them. Nobody's feeding them and they have it slabbered all over their face. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's independence. That's autonomy. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, you don't have to sit there and feed them, um, you know, just put it down and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And if they push it away and they don't want to eat, you know, come back later and maybe have, but I mean, that's an example of autonomy and independence mm -hmm. um, in, in, in pediatrics as well. Um, you know, yeah, we, you know, as the kids get older, you, you do want them to eat. Well, you, know, you need to eat your broccoli. Get, get, you got to do that. It's right there in front of you. You're not leaving the table. You finish your broccoli. Mm -hmm. Well, they're making an autonomous, independent decision. They don't like broccoli. So the question you ask is, what don't you like about it? Well, it tastes terrible. How about if I put some Velveeta cheese on top of that? Would that make a difference? <laughs> right. Yeah. right? So that's that, that's that covenant relationship, right? That's that, yeah. that's that relationship. You're not, you don't want to battle. You want to have that covenant. You want to have that integrated decision. And the same thing with adults, the elderly, you know, in a, in, in a, you know, put a plate in front of them. And if they want to slab, slabber it all over their face, that's their choice. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And this is where servanthood comes into play. Mm -hmm. You're there to clean it up, right? Mm -hmm. You're there to clear it up. Why? Because you care enough about them that you're going to, and you're not going to criticize them and you're not going to hold them, hold them responsible. The same thing you would with that one-year-old. Yeah. He's got spaghetti everywhere on the floor. And you hope that you have a, a dog there to help clean up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Licking up all this stuff off the floor. I mean, it probably makes that experience even more poignant, right? I mean, it, you're, as a child, you, you have less control over your life and sort of decisions you make. And as you get older, you get, in theory, more and more control over your life and, and what you do. And I think it, it, it has to be hard as an older adult to have this external force on you to right. take that power away, right? That personhood and that, um, that autonomy, uh, whether or not the motives behind it, right? I mean, I think I'm sure more often than not, the motives are good in intent, right? I'm trying to do what's trying to help you, but at the same time, uh, there's that uh, lack of appreciation of that loss of autonomy and what that does to the psyche, you know, and, and to you as a person, um, whatever flavor of that or cut of, cut of that it is, it's, it's impactful to, to people. So you're exactly correct. And what happens is as we discount personhood with someone, uh, they, they begin to discount it as well. Mm -hmm. And they lose all perspective of who they are. And they just become a what? Well, I'm just a, I'm just a thing with Alzheimer's. We don't know what they're really thinking. They may be thinking back there, well, uh, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm nobody. Maybe I'm nobody. So I think, I think the more we 
we introduce personhood to everyone. I think it, it just it brings back the perspective of uh, you are who you are. Mm -hmm. and, and I respect that. I respect that. Yeah, because this just keeps bringing connections to the learning sciences for me. I, in your the last comments, I'm thinking of this this concept called the growth mindset, there is kind of a period of life where you often solidify a lot of beliefs about yourself. Uh, it tends to be around middle school. Uh, and that doesn't mean they can't be changed, but they often strongly influence your decisions moving forward at that point. And the growth mindset is a sort of concept of that, yes, I can't do something or, or, or I struggle to do something might be a better way of saying it, but I can achieve it. And I can, I can grow to the point of, of jumping whatever hurdle it is. And the opposite of that is that I'm just not good at that. And then, you know, you just kind of walk away from it and that's, you've accepted it as a personal limitation and just is what it is kind of thing. And uh, again, I mean, it's, I think so much of the stimulus around you can reinforce one of those mindsets and, and you internally play that back in your head over and over and over again until it becomes your story, you know, and, and you just internalize it at that point until there's a sufficient critical event that causes it to change. And, uh, and, and normally that resistance is, is, is heavy. <laughs> so it takes something significant to move you out of that mental mind space uh, to, to look at what yourself and your abilities differently. And um, <clears throat> it's, it's amazing how much power we have over other people that we don't, we just don't realize in our, in our day-to-day words. Well, let me give you a, a couple of thoughts on that. The mentally challenged, especially, uh, young children and young adults are mentally challenged. Their focus is they may not even know that they are unable to do things. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the places that they learn and live, the people that surround them, the people that are with them to encourage them, gives them that opportunity to say, yeah, maybe I can do this. There's this great terminology uh, where the word disabled uh, mm -hmm. is no longer used, that it's really the abled. This person is abled. They're mm -hmm. able to do things. So, you know, when you talk about the mentally challenged in public schools, et cetera, the learning resource, the learning skills, life skills, stage places, they learn, uh, they're motivated. And then when you take rehab, let's take a person with a stroke mm -hmm. or uh, paralysis in rehab, that's what they're doing in rehab is giving someone the opportunity to say, yeah, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I've got people around me. I don't have to give up. And we see that with um, uh, the veterans, you know, who have had significant injuries, uh, individuals who had severe strokes, rehab. That's what you're talking about, is that the people around you are encouraging you to be able mm -hmm. to do what your abilities are. Uh, and Whatever your abilities are, uh, you'll get there uh, as long as we have people there to help you. Yeah, those servants, right? Those those people who are there to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, David, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. It was it was fun. I hope uh, hope our listeners enjoy and have learned some things out of this as well. And um, yeah, uh, I, I hope we can dig into some of those other topics that you mentioned uh, as well. And maybe we can have a future podcast kind of getting into those uh, a bit deeper. Great. Well, thank you, John, for, for the opportunity. I appreciate the time and, uh, you know, wish you all the best. Take care. Thank you. To all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. 
The Innovations in Aging podcast is supported by Innovations in Aging graduate interdisciplinary degree programs and University of Arizona Health Sciences Global and Online. If you're interested in the career of gerontology or adding new skills to your current profession, you can learn more about University of Arizona academic programs in the podcast description. Thank you.